Good evening. It's great to be with y'all tonight. And to say I'm a little nervous would be an understatement, but, um, and I'm, I even like second guess my abilities to do this, but um, maybe some men in our passage tonight felt the same way. Um, and I've learned that it really isn't about me. It's about trusting Jesus, sharing his word, and letting the Holy Spirit work within me. Thanks to friends for talking with me, encouraging me, and helping me to have this perspective. Tonight, we're going to look at Mark chapter 3, verses 13 to 35. It is a meaty passage that I hope to unpack for you a little and provide some ways to apply it to ourselves along the way. In Jan's introduction to the book of Mark, she shared that Mark looks closely at the person of Jesus, his divine authority, his humanity, and his divine sonship. You will see each of these further developed as we look at the passage. It is broken down into three main parts. The calling of the twelve, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, or your Bible might say a house divided, Satan fighting against Satan, or the greatest sin of all. And then the last part, Jesus' mother and brothers, or a true spiritual family. Let's start with the calling of the twelve. We see Jesus calling the first disciples from the Sea of Galilee, calling Simon, Andrew, James, and John to be the fishers of men in Mark chapter 1. But here in Mark chapter 3, verses 13 to 19, we see the full account in which Jesus is calling and appointing all 12 men that he desired to be his apostles. We read, And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. I had to practice pronouncing that a few times. Um, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who portrayed him. Jesus is not only naming those he is calling, but he is also describing what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. This is an exciting point in Jesus' ministry. Before we look at what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, it is interesting to pause and look at the setting of this passage and the correlations that we see to the Old Testament. Verse 13 says, And he went up on the mountain and called to him um, those whom he desired, and they came to him. Mark often uses mountains as places of significant sites for Jesus' ministry, just as they were used in the Old Testament as significant sites of revelation. Jesus went up on a mountain to call the twelve, just like Moses went up on Mount Sinai to receive and recount the Ten Commandments. Secondly, Jesus is calling twelve disciples, just as God made a covenant with the twelve tribes of Israel. The choosing of the twelve is a symbol that Jesus' ministry was establishing a new Israel. Tim Keller puts it this way, Jesus' career is the new Exodus event that liberates not just from physical bondage, but from sin and death itself. His purpose would be to establish his kingdom throughout the whole universe. And Jesus designed this. In our Bibles, we most likely read, and he appointed 12. 
but the Greek translates it, he made 12. This group of disciples is a new creation, just like God made the heavens and the earth. James Edwards writes, To appoint is to select from an existing lot and raise to a new status, but to make means to bring into existence. And he goes on with, Discipleship does not consist in what disciples can do for Christ, but in what Christ can make of disciples. It isn't about what we can do, but instead what Christ can and will do through us if we allow him. Who are these men that Jesus is calling to be apostles? Jesus is calling ordinary men. Nothing indicates anything special about the disciples that would have made them stand out to be chosen. I wonder if they even had doubts about why Jesus had chosen them. Did they fear that they weren't qualified to be Jesus' disciples? Tim Keller notes that they weren't chosen for what they had accomplished, but they were simply chosen out of grace and love. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 to 8, God says to Israel, I called you not because you were better or larger or greater than other nations, but simply because I chose to set my love on you. We are chosen people too. God has chosen to call us out of love and grace too. And God's love for us is based on our relationship with him, not on what we do for him. This gives me a lot of hope, and I hope it does for you too. Even when we feel ill-equipped and question our ability to be a disciple of Jesus, we can have faith that Jesus has chosen us and will use us in the ways that he desires. Jesus also called the disciples by name. Simon Peter is named first in all of the Gospels and is often the representative and spokesperson for the rest of the group. We know from Jan's talk that Mark had a close relationship with Peter as his interpreter and scribe. Mark had firsthand knowledge of the disciples. Simon is given the nickname Peter, which means rock or stone. It isn't until much later, though, that he lives up to this nickname. The sons of Zebedee, James and John, always follow after Peter, and they are given the nickname Boanerges, sons of thunder, which means loud ones. These three, Peter, James, and John, were Jesus' inner circle. These nicknames are only noted here in the book of Mark, hence probably his close relationship um, with Peter. If we pause to think about the significance of a nickname, it gives us another look at the character of Jesus. You are usually only given a nickname by someone that knows you well, loves you, cares for you. Jesus knew his disciples intimately. He loved and cared for them. And he knows us well, loves us, and cares for us. Jesus was calling these 12 men to become disciples so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. In Greek and Hebrew, the root of disciples, disciple means to be a student or a learner, specifically a student or a learner who is a follower of a spiritual teacher or a leader, an apprentice. Sinclair Ferguson shares three reasons for Jesus choosing these men, companionship, apostleship, and authority. First, let's look at companionship. 
We know from Genesis that man was not made to be alone. We were designed for relationships. Jesus came to earth to be fully human, to be in relationship with other humans. Ferguson writes, to be truly and fully human means to be made for friendship. Having a friendship with Jesus came up in my small group last week. The fact that Jesus desires our friendship and he delights in our friendship. He pursues a friendship with us. This is something I'm not sure we often stop to think about. And if we did, would it change how we approach our relationship with Jesus? Friendship is a two-way street. Just as Jesus desired a friendship with the disciples, the disciples were being called to be intimate with Jesus and to learn from him. Jesus was giving them a hands-on opportunity to live day in and day out with him. They got to see Jesus model what it looks like to be a follower of God. The disciples weren't just attending a -a three-day-a-week seminary class with him. They received their training by living with Jesus round the clock and putting Jesus at the center of every part of their life. Before the disciples could go out to preach, they needed to be with Jesus in a deep, intimate relationship. Since COVID, I have been given the opportunity to spend a lot more time with my family, like I'm sure many of you have. We are living day in and day out with each other, more so now than we ever have before. The other week, it was midday, and something came up with my middle son, Jack. And I had stopped to talk to him about his response and his reactions. It was just a quick moment, but after he went back up to his room to log back on to virtual school... I was reflecting on the increased opportunities that I've had to be with my children, to teach them life lessons, to teach them manners, and to even point them to Jesus. I'm sure that there are many opportunities that I'm missing and failing at, but it has led me to think about this talk. If I want to grow in my ability to be a disciple for Jesus, I need to be spending more time with Jesus throughout my day. I need to make that conscious effort Take away the distractions, even the ones that may be good, and put Jesus at the center of every part of my life. This is something that I've been feeling Jesus pulling me towards for a while now. I'm a busy person. I'm naturally busy from being a mom of three, but also I choose busyness. I like to be busy. I like to be involved in a lot, a lot of good things. But I've had to reflect on the consequences of this busyness. Does it allow me time to really be with Jesus? Does it allow me time to not only read my Bible and pray, but does it allow me time to be still and sit with Jesus and listen? Does it allow me time to really learn from him and reflect on how I can be living for him and sharing the good news of Jesus with others? I know that this is not something that I will be able to change overnight and even do on my own accord. And it may even cost, come at a cost at times. However, through prayer and trusting in Jesus and his grace, I have faith that I can strive to make decisions about how I'm spending my day so that I'm more intentional in freeing up time to be with Jesus. The second reason he called the disciples apostleship. The men were being called to be sent, which is the Greek word for apostle. Jesus called the disciples to do what he did, to preach and to cast out demons, and later to do Jesus' ministry of healing. We cannot be disciples of Jesus unless we are also acting as apostles as well. Keller says, 
We are to communicate truth, show love, use the gifts of the Spirit that we have, and bring people under the power of the King that heals. We aren't called to just come to Jesus with our needs, but to serve him and to spread his good news throughout the kingdom. Third, the men were chosen so that they would also have his authority. Mark Strauss writes about the authority Jesus was giving the disciples in this way. The preaching would be the proclamation of the coming of the kingdom of God. Casting out demons demonstrates the authority of the kingdom of God, which invades and overwhelms the kingdom of Satan. Not all of Jesus' followers were given the ability to cast out demons, but we shouldn't ignore the significance of the fight against Satan. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 18 says, He did not come to wrestle merely with flesh and blood, but with the power of darkness. The disciples were called to battle Satan, and we are as well. Next, we move on to chapter 3, verses 20 to 35. And this is a sandwich passage, or the fancier term intercalation, which is a literary device in which a story is started and then interrupted by another story and then finished by returning to the first story. The stories have common themes that are meant to be compared. This is a literary technique that we will continue to see Mark utilize throughout the rest of the book. This passage is begun with Jesus arriving home to the questioning voices of his family and then is interrupted by the scribes from Jerusalem accusing Jesus of using demons in his ministry. The two groups that should be his biggest supporters are rejecting him and questioning his authority. It leaves us with three theories. One, Jesus is out of his mind, insane. Two, Jesus is bad, evil. Or three, Jesus is who he says he is. Before we move on here, on from here, here are some questions to ponder. How do you think this made Jesus feel? Why do you think the two groups that should have been his biggest supporters were doing the opposite? Does this ever happen in our own life? And do we ever do it ourselves? Jesus is quick to refute these theories. He points out their absurdity and illogicalness. Jesus uses parables to show that the scribes' accusations are false. Why would Satan work against himself? Even Satan knows if he attacks himself, he will be defeated and come to an end. Jesus also sets up a metaphor using an attack on on a house, the world, in which a stronger man, Jesus, ties up a strong man, Satan, and captures his property. Prisoners, the people Jesus is freeing from exorcisms, us. Tim Keller puts it this way. Jesus is also saying, The defeats of Satan you see are not just isolated miracles, but a whole ministry of wide-scale release from Satan's power. I am tying up Satan and plundering him of dozens of his captives and prizes. Jesus is further establishing his authority and his mission to restore people to fellowship with God. Jesus then says, Truly I say to you, this phrase occurs 13 times in Mark and is meant to accentuate Jesus' authority and to preface an earnest warning or a correction. 
In this case, Jesus is warning those that sin against the Holy Spirit. He first states that all sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven, but then adds, blasphemies against the Holy Spirit are unforgivable, an eternal sin. All of our sins are forgiven. We do not need to worry about that. That is the heart of the gospel. However, Jesus is informing his accusers here that if they continue to attribute the work of the Holy Spirit to Satan and his demons, that is an unforgivable sin. All the commentaries agreed that if you are worried about having committed this sin, you most definitely have not. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit would be accompanied by an indifference to sin. When we walk closely with Jesus, putting our trust in him, seeking forgiveness when needed, we can rest assured that all of our sins will be forgiven. We finish with the end of the sandwich. Jesus' family, his brothers, his mother and brothers seeking him. They are standing outside calling for him. Jesus is inside with a crowd around, the disciples including. This is the opposite of what you might think. Shouldn't Jesus' family be with him, inside and the crowds on the outside? Jesus answers them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus is confirming with authority what he spoke in Mark chapter 1, verse 14. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It is time for a new kingdom and a new family. Mark Strauss writes, Jesus is not rejecting his own family. He is establishing a new society in which family is not defined by ethnic or national identity, but by a common allegiance to the kingdom of God and his purpose in the world. Jesus loved his family and had deep bonds with them. However, Jesus understood his higher calling to his Father in heaven and the priority needed to be given to his spiritual family. Jesus recognized that the cost of this obedience that he was calling the disciples and his family to follow, Jesus recognized the cost of this obedience he was calling the disciples and his family to follow to put their allegiance to God and his will first. It had been costly to him, too. Jesus isn't asking his family or us to do something he hasn't already done. He had left his home and his family to follow the will of God. Jesus also isn't asking them to do this alone. They were called together to be a new family. The disciples came from diverse backgrounds, socially, politically, and philosophically. Matthew was a tax collector and a Roman collaborator. Simon the Zealot was a part of a group working to overthrow the Roman government. The diversity of the disciples is a model of the diversity that should be present in the church. Jesus brought together two men that were on complete opposite political sides to come together for a common purpose and bond, their faith in Jesus and their desire to share his love with the world. I don't think this message could come at a more appropriate time. We are living in intense times where polarization of political and social views are at their peak. Let's allow our faith in Jesus to bring us together 
and focus on our common bond. We must keep our eyes on the Father of our kingdom and love, care, and respect our brothers and sisters in our kingdom family, even when they hold different political and social views. We are called not to just have a strong personal relationship with Jesus, but to build community with fellow believers. Maybe some people you would never be connected to otherwise. We are adopted sons and daughters, brought together to be brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to cultivate this and step outside of our comfort zones to make this happen. Recently, our own sister in Christ, Ellen Dykus, spoke at a leadership conference held here at New Life. The title of her talk was, What If I Don't Fit the Typical Suburban Church Makeup? And the purpose of her talk was to give us guidance on how we should be intentionally pursuing people who may not fit our mold. She encouraged us to humble ourselves, seek people who are different than us, and love them with the Christ-like love that we find in Romans chapter 12, 15. Weep with those that weep, and rejoice with those that rejoice. I know this definitely challenges me. How can I be intentionally pursuing others, especially those that might be different than me? How can I enter into their lives and focus on our similarities instead of our differences? Is this easy? Is it comfortable? Even scary, maybe? And does COVID even make it more difficult right now? But we can get creative, and the reward will be far greater than the cost. We can come to Jesus and ask him for his help and guidance along the way. If we seek him, he will be there. Will you please pray with me? Dear Jesus, I thank you for being a loving father that knows us deeply and desires a deep relationship with us. Draw us near to you in intimate ways so that we can be with you and learn from you. Provide us with your courage and your wisdom to share your good news with others. Help unite us through our common bond of loving you and serving your kingdom. I pray now that these women would have fruitful conversations in their small groups in which they could reflect on your words and the meaning that it has for their lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.